Warmer, sunnier days are finally arriving. As outside is calling, Factor is here to make sure that however busy you get, your meals are taken care of, giving you all the energy and time to enjoy that weather. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So, no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. Treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and, oh yes, blackened salmon. Don't mind if I do. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine and give yourself time to focus on what makes you happy. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash danjones50 and use code danjones50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code danjones50 at factormeals.com slash danjones50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Before we start, a strong content warning. Lots of medieval history is pretty violent, but this episode contains some of the darkest stuff yet. There's reference to suicide, a description of racist violence, and sexual abuse. So please, be aware. The hillsides around the walled town of Vézelay in central France are covered in tents. Thousands of them. Milling around the tents, Tens of thousands of people, perhaps even as many as a hundred thousand. It's a hot July day in 1190, and everywhere you turn, you can hear excited voices chattering away in a great babble of different languages and dialects. Pack animals are snorting and stamping. Blacksmiths are fixing horseshoes. Cooking fires are crackling. Some of the folk in this huge, festival-sized crowd are well off while others are carrying pretty much everything they own on their backs. There are experienced soldiers bumping up next to pilgrims who are just tagging along, hoping to pitch in any way they can. Everybody here, though, is connected by a single badge and vow. On their clothes, they all wear the distinctive cross of crusaders. In their hearts, they're all committed to a holy oath they've sworn. Three years ago to the day, thousands of miles away near the Sea of Galilee in medieval Palestine, a powerful Muslim sultan known as Saladin swept to victory in battle over a Christian army. Saladin slaughtered the finest knights in the Holy Land and captured the King of Jerusalem. He even confiscated Christianity's holiest relic, a large chunk of the true cross on which Christ was believed to have been crucified. Then Saladin marched on Jerusalem itself and conquered the city. The people huddled in tents on this French hillside have all vowed to go and take revenge. Today, finally, after years of preparation, they're ready to go. Gossiping voices ask each other, what strange lands will we see? How's it going to play out? Do you think we'll ever be back here again? In Vézelay Abbey, a huge, stunning stone church at the top of the hill, the two grandest crusade leaders are making their own preparations and are probably sharing similar anxieties, not only about the mission, 
but their trust in each other. They are Richard the Lionheart, the 32-year-old King of England, and Philip Augustus, the 24-year-old King of France. For much of their adult lives, they've been the best of friends and political allies. Nearly three years ago, they promised to go crusading together, and it felt like the climax of the greatest bromance the world had ever known. Today, though, things are a little different. At the height of their friendship, Richard was a duke and Philip was a king. It kind of worked. But a few months ago, Richard succeeded his father as king of England, which was when things got awkward. It isn't often that monarchs of England and France manage to buddy up successfully, especially considering Richard's Plantagenet empire also includes lands all over modern-day France, meaning there are plenty of border disputes to deal with. And in this case, there are lingering tensions over a promise Richard made, and made, and made again, to marry Philip's sister Alice. They were first betrothed years ago, and for reasons Philip doesn't quite understand, Richard just won't go through with the wedding. The English king wouldn't even have Alice present at his coronation last autumn, which hardly bodes well for a successful marriage. Philip is beginning to suspect that he's being played like a cheap violin. Besides all that, both Richard and Philip have personal issues they're working through. Philip has recently lost his wife, Queen Isabella, in childbirth. Like any medieval king, he's both grieving and calculating who he's going to marry next. Richard doesn't have quite the same tragedy to deal with, but he's got a lot to think about. Going on crusade means leaving his brand new kingdom behind and as a newcomer to his crown, he's not absolutely confident it's in safe hands. Will his slippery young brother John make a play for the throne in his absence? Are the bureaucrats he's appointed to run the various parts of his Plantagenet empire going to be able to deal with the uppity barons? Richard would like to leave his mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, in charge of everything, but he's packed her off on an urgent, dangerous and top-secret mission to a neighbouring kingdom. How will that go down? No one said being a king would be easy, but being a crusader king is a special kind of difficult. Then again, when Richard and Philip look out from the abbey, over their tens of thousands of followers, all eagerly waiting to march to the rescue of Christ's kingdom, they must be filled with a sense of excitement and awesome responsibility. And when they lead that army down from the French hillside and head east, they'll be embarking on one of the most extraordinary journeys in all of history. It's a journey that will change Richard and Philip and their world forever. We call it the Third Crusade. I'm Dan Jones, and from something else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is History. Season 2 of A Dynasty to Die For. Episode 2, Blood and Gold. Looking back more than eight centuries after the fact, we might say that 1190 was the year of peak crusade frenzy. Last season, 
We heard so much about Richard and Philip's planned crusade against Saladin that it all started to sound kind of normal. So it's worth reminding ourselves what Richard and Philip Augustus are actually proposing to do in 1190, because it is very much not normal. The two most important rulers in Western Europe are going to abandon their kingdoms for a minimum of a year, probably more, and go to fight on the front line of a war nearly 3,000 miles away. To them, the cause is righteous, but fighting on a crusade is more than just dangerous. It's a very reliable way to get killed, either in battle or from disease or plain bad luck. Case in point, only weeks before Richard and Philip assemble their armies, the German emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, the other greatest monarch in Europe, drowned bathing in a river in Asia Minor while on his own journey east. Even if you don't die, there are a million other ways to come to grief. Being taken prisoner, struck down with dysentery, or even mauled by a bear, as happened to one unfortunate leader of the First Crusade back in the 1090s. And on top of all that, there's the cost, which is absolutely staggering. We're talking about a minimum of £100,000, in an age where the King of England's average yearly revenue was about half that. For a very rough comparison, consider that today the UK government makes about £800 billion a year in tax revenue. That would make it £1.6 trillion for a crusade. That's not exact by any means, but you get the idea. In fact, even before Richard left on crusade in 1190, his urgent need for money had already set the tone for his reign. As we heard last time, he was crowned in September 1189, with his mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, overseeing the pomp and ceremony. As soon as that's done, Richard effectively puts his kingdom on the market. What does that mean in practice? Well, as a chronicler called Roger of Howden describes it, Everything was put up for sale. Offices, lordships, earldoms, sheriffdoms, castles, towns, lands, the lot. Richard squeezes every source of revenue he can. Another chronicler says he makes himself the richest king of England there ever was. Richard himself is said to joke about it at the time, saying, I would sell London if I could find a buyer. But it isn't all jokes, because there's a very, very dark side to Richard's drive to raise money in the name of crusading in 1190. It takes the form of one of the most notorious outbreaks of anti-Semitic persecution in British history. There's a clear link in medieval European minds between finance and Judaism. Money lending with interest is technically banned by church law in the Middle Ages. It's the sin of usury. That means the only people who are allowed to openly lend money at interest are Jewish people. In England and some other realms, Jews can work as moneylenders under the special protection of the crown. That special protection means it's illegal, punishable by anything up to death, to harm a Jewish financier. But from time to time, resentment at the special status of these Jewish financiers combines with an ancient, poisonous anti-Semitism 
that is deeply rooted in medieval culture. And then the law goes out the window. That's what happens in 1189-90 in England. The violence begins right from Richard's coronation, the official start of a new reign set to be defined by military action against the so-called enemies of Christ. That sentiment, along with existing resentments towards Jewish moneylenders, is a deadly combination. At the feast that follows the coronation, some of Richard's Jewish subjects arrive trying to present the king with gifts. There's a scuffle at the gates, which turns into a bloody fight. Things escalate, and soon a mob is tearing through London, hunting down Jewish people, burning their houses, robbing and murdering them. Richard hangs a few of the rioters in the days that follow, but it's nowhere near enough to stem the tide of violence. A few months later, there's an even worse massacre, this time in the northern city of York. Jews are attacked and their homes raided. Around 150 Jewish people and their families take refuge in the royal stronghold of York Castle, but they're surrounded by a mob baying for blood. Many of them choose suicide rather than facing the mob, and the rest who come out of the castle to plead for their lives are murdered. So there's a terrible human cost to Richard's crusade before it even leaves England. And for Jews in medieval England, the constant menace of discrimination, violence and death never really goes away. Which brings us back to the army Richard and Philip march out of Vézelay in July 1190. The two kings head south until they bring their crusaders to the city of Lyon. But when they get there, there's a disaster at a bridge over the river Rhone. So many people pile onto the bridge that it collapses under their weight. Hundreds plunge into the waters and some drown. It's not a great start. At this point, Richard and Philip agree that the army is simply too huge to manage properly. They decide to split their forces. The French will go to Genoa and hire ships to take them to the Holy Land. Richard will take his men to Marseille, where he's expecting his own fleet of ships, replete with even more English crusaders, to meet him. They'll then rendezvous on Sicily, within striking distance of their goal. Sounds good? Well, Philip goes off to Genoa, and his bit of the plan turns out as hoped. But when Richard gets to Marseille, his fleet is nowhere to be seen. Why? Well, the sailors have taken their sweet time making their way from the south coast of England into the Mediterranean. In fact, they've stopped off at Lisbon, Portugal, and have, well, totally lost their minds. When the English ships docked, the sailors piled off and streamed into the city, apparently determined to cause havoc. First, and most obviously, they got blind drunk. Then they plundered the houses of all the Jews and Muslims they could find living there. They raped and burned and stole and looted until the King of Portugal had to bar the city gates and throw several hundred English crusaders in jail. The English captains got their men back under control, eventually, but the damage was done. That's why Richard gets to Marseille and finds no fleet waiting for him. Amazingly, though, this doesn't seem to really faze him. 
Richard is keen to stick to the game plan and meet Philip in Sicily. If there are none of his own warships to take him, then he's just going to hire some transporter ships to cruise down the Italian coast to the Straits of Messina, the stretch of water between mainland Italy and the island of Sicily, and meet his navy there. It's a fairly madcap, make-it-up-as-you-go-along way to go about a crusade that has been planned for three full years. But these are mad times, and Richard is never one to wait about and think things through. The English king and his army of thousands pile onto the transporter ships. Then they set off on their cruise, occasionally coming ashore to put the fear of God into anyone and everyone who sees them coming. They take it easy. It's the summer after all, and the coastline looks beautiful. And Richard himself must cut a grand figure, standing calmly at the prow of the ship, cloak billowing in the breeze. On his hip, he carries a magnificent sword that he claims is King Arthur's legendary blade, Excalibur. But inside, Richard is far from calm. He's just got wind of some news that has sent him into a white-hot fury. And when he gets to Sicily, he plans to unleash it. When Henry III chose his royal advisers, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions, and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's full of people celebrating their successes, but if the Plantagenets have taught us anything, it's that failing is much more interesting. So that's why I'm certain you're going to love the podcast How to Fail. The very brilliant Elizabeth Day invites guests on to talk about three of their biggest failures and what they've taught them about life. It's a great way to hear a new side to people you may think you know. Guests include Bernie Sanders, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Stanley Tucci. Give it a try. Find How to Fail wherever you get your podcasts. Sicily is a seriously amazing place. I'm not just talking about the beaches, the restaurants, the vino and the volcano. In the Middle Ages, it's a strategically vital, culturally rich, economically prosperous and highly unstable pivot point, slap bang in the heart of the Mediterranean. Over the years, it's been ruled by Romans, Greeks, Arabs, and by the time we get to the 12th century, Christian kings descended from the same family as William the Conqueror. It's also well-known crusader country. In fact, in one telling, this is where the Crusades actually began. 
a Muslim chronicler called Ibn al-Athir, claims that once upon a time, some French ambassadors came to the Christian ruler of Sicily, then known as Count Roger I. They were trying to convince him to start a war to conquer a few rich cities in North Africa. But Roger wasn't having any of it. He was so unimpressed by the ambassador's proposal that at first he didn't even say anything. He just lifted his leg and farted at them. That's what I think of that, he said. But if you want to go cause trouble for Muslims and conquer a nice juicy city, may I recommend to you Jerusalem. Now, this isn't the place to argue about whether or not that's really how the crusade started. I just like that story. And it's a useful reminder that in the medieval mindset, one way or another, Sicily was intimately connected to crusading. If you were on your way to the Holy Land, especially by sea, the island was a useful place to call in. You could fix your ships, take on supplies, and get ready for the next phase of the journey. That's why, in the autumn of 1190, we find Philip Augustus in Sicily. It's partly why Richard's there too. Only in Richard's case, he's also come to take care of some Plantagenet family business. For those of you with exceptional memories, you may recall from season one that in 1177, Richard's youngest sister Joan was packed off, aged 12, to marry the King of Sicily a descendant of Farty Roger, known as William II. Well, in 1189, William died, leaving Joan a widow. He's been succeeded by a cousin of his called Tancred, a short and unpleasant individual nicknamed the Monkey King, due to the fact that he's absolutely covered in hair. And Tancred hasn't treated poor old Joan very courteously. In fact, he's put her under house arrest and taking control of all her money. This isn't a very nice thing to do to a lady at the best of times, but the Monkey King picks his moment phenomenally badly. Because just a few months later, who's headed his way but Joan's big brother Richard, at the head of a huge army. When he hears what Tancred has been up to, he, not entirely surprisingly, flips his lid. Richard is in the mood for a fight. He's already got into a row on his way there with some peasants in southern Italy. He's accused one of them of flying birds of prey, a practice he believes should be reserved for noblemen. He's whacked the peasant with the flat of his sword, hard enough that the blade snapped. So the mighty King Richard has had to make a sharp exit, pursued by the angry Italian peasant and all his mates. Lionheart indeed. So this is the general vibe of Richard and his crusaders when they arrive at the Sicilian harbour city of Messina on September the 22nd, 1190. Their bloodthirsty naval comrades have also arrived, fresh from terrorising Lisbon. And this unsavoury bunch have now convinced themselves that they're being ripped off by the Sicilian shopkeepers. Richard sees how he can kill two birds with one stone. He musters his troops and tells them that they're not just coming to Messina for a spot of sightseeing and a bowl of pasta. They're going to conquer the place and see how the monkey king Tancred feels about that. Which is exactly what they do. 
His men have been itching for proper action for weeks now. And even though the people of Messina are very much not the enemies of Christ, the English go into destroy mode once again. They tear Messina to bits in little more than an afternoon, watched by the mildly horrified French army. Richard has his banners raised over the city in triumph and sends his engineers out to build a temporary castle to guard the city. Lo and behold, in a matter of days, word has come to him from Tancred that he's going to let Joan go and give back all the money he's been withholding from her. Smart decision. For Richard, who grew up bullying rough-neck lords in Aquitaine and besieging far tougher strongholds than Messina, it's easy work. But as usual, what he doesn't quite realise is how much his constant bull-in-a-china-shop act aggravates people who have to live alongside him. And on Sicily, one man is getting seriously ticked off with the way Richard is going about the crusade. I'm not talking about Tancred. He's been well and truly put in his place. It's someone Richard can far less afford to turn into an enemy. His crusade partner Philip Augustus has very different ideas about the way one ought to behave on a visit to a supposedly friendly Christian kingdom. But if he thinks Richard's going to change his ways, he's dead wrong. In fact, Richard is about to turn Philip Augustus's crusade into a nightmare. To find out how, come back for the next episode of This Is History. Before you go, just a reminder that the Plantagenet drama doesn't end here. If you get on This Is History Plus, then you'll discover that every week when episodes drop, I also release an extra episode full of weird, wonderful, and sometimes completely random stuff we don't have time for in the main story. This week we dive right back to the very beginning of crusading, and discuss just why the great and the good were so desperate to go – despite the terrifying risks, including, if you are special, getting mauled by a bear. What's more, as a subscriber, you'll get all our episodes ad-free. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or a review. It's a great way to support us and help new people find the podcast.